Howdy, howdy, howdy. I am back for probably my final episode. Final episode for a while, so unfortunately for you guys, I know you have been waiting a really long time for this one. Um, and I'm excited to tell you the story, but at least for now it is a farewell. Just because my poor little wrinkly little small pea brain can't handle it. <laughs> Um, mostly for the fact that every time, like, I research these cases, they become so much more real than, you know, the stories you listen to. Everybody's fascinated with mysteries and wanting to catch the bad guy, but they don't realize, like, that these are real people and these events actually did happen. And just because this happened years ago doesn't mean that it's still affecting people today. So, it even affects me when I, you know, research through all of this. Um, it's really fun to listen to, and it's really fun to talk about, but at the end of the day, these are real people, and I feel like, on a certain level, doing podcasts about this kind of stuff glorifies the killer, and I really wanted this show to be the opposite. I wanted it to glorify the victims and show how badass they are. So with this final episode, I'm definitely going to go heavy into the victims because they deserve it. And I think it's time to just get, like, put it away. Like, pack it up. Like, let's take all these serial killers and put them somewhere they belong, which is under the mat. We don't need to talk about them. We don't need to hear about them. We know what they did. And we know they caused a lot of pain. So every time we bring it up, it's like we're bringing up other people's pain and we turn it into a fun story. And I don't, I don't know, I don't like it for some reason. I'll still listen to true crime, but maybe just not research for now. So I'm really sorry. I hope you can understand. And who knows, maybe one day I'll pick back up in the future and continue to do this awesome show but you guys have been great this support has been overwhelming and I can't believe all of the things that you guys have said and how you want more episodes and things like that and it's been really really nice and I love you guys so I just want you to know that before I start but today we are going to cover BTK otherwise known as Dennis Rader um he murdered 10 people very casually. He did this under this disguise of being a husband and a father and a churchgoer and a Boy Scout leader. And he was just very under the radar. So when we mentioned dating the devil, this guy, I mean, his wife was married to the devil. So this is essentially the whole show is just dating somebody who you have no idea who they are. And this is the epitome of it. So without further ado, I give you BTK. Before I do BTK, though, I do want to give a huge disclaimer warning, trigger warnings all around. There will be topics of sexual assault, murder, strangulation, violence, the eerily creepily old man that is Dennis Rader um and just dark weird fetishes so if you guys are triggered by any of that please don't listen or just 
take a break from listening to this for a while and come back when you're ready. All right, here's BTK. That was an emotional-ass intro, but here we go. Dennis Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Kansas to Dorothea Rader and William Rader. Um, his mom was a bookkeeper in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and his dad was in the Marine Corps, and he worked at a gas and electric company. Uh, Dennis Rader was the oldest of four kids, and they were all boys, so you can imagine how that went. Surprisingly, though, there was nothing that was abusive in his early life. Like, his father was strict, but he wasn't too strict. Um, there was no severe trauma or big events like anything that happened with other serial killers. He was just a normal kid, and he went to elementary school, and he was a Boy Scout, and he went to church. Um, they described him as polite and quiet, and there was just nothing really weird about him. After the younger years, he graduated from Wichita Heights High School in 1963, and then in 1965, he entered Kansas, I don't know how do you, how you pronounce this, Wesleyan College in Salina? I don't know, Wesleyan, Wesleyan, I, I'm not sure. But during this time, he started breaking and entering into homes, he started stealing, and he most importantly was getting away with all these things. Now, he had dropped out of college. Some people say he left college. Some people said that, like, his grades weren't that great. Um, and he went to a community college because he had these bad grades. And then in 1966, he joined the Air Force, and he did um, basic training in Texas. Um, so he was in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970, where he was stationed in Okinawa for six months, and in 1968, he was stationed at the Tachikawa Air Base near Tokyo. I cannot talk, you guys. I don't know what to do. In this time, he was stealing underwear. He was soliciting uh, sex workers who wanted nothing to do with him because he started getting into the darker um, kind of BDSM kind of stuff, and they wanted nothing to do with him, obviously, because when you're a sex worker and you're being approached with ropes, the first thing you think about is, no, no thank you, I'm sorry. If I was being paid, even if I was being paid to have sex, if there is a random man that's like, hey, let's do this, I'm gonna be like, no, I'm gonna get murdered instantly, goodbye. And being a sex worker is dangerous. It is so dangerous. So they had every right to say no to that man. Now, in 1970, he returned to Wichita, Kansas, by the way. This is all in Kansas. And in 1971, he married 23-year-old Paula Dietz, who he had a son and a daughter with. Dennis Rader then started working with a company called Cessna, which was a small aircraft manufacturer. And then he started attending a community college to get his associate's degree in electronics. But by the end of the same year, he started to study at Wichita State University to get his degree. But then they had said, oh, you have terrible grades. So he left. And allegedly, he had been in some criminal justice classes, which I think is very weird. Because if he started stealing back in the Air Force... He was getting into all this criminal activity. I think it was kind of just like a 
like a how do I get away with it kind of class. Like, I don't think he took it seriously as in he wants to be a cop, but maybe more how can I get away with this. By the way, there was also a claim um, that around the years 1965, like the Air Force days, that he claimed to have looked for victims, but he was never successful with that. For some reason, either he backed out or something happened with the victims that he chose, but nothing, like there were no solid concrete evidence that stated that something happened. So we have no idea. Now, I do want to say that Dennis had said that he enjoyed getting spanked by his mother, he developed dark fantasies when he was younger, and he would hurt animals, he would kill dogs and cats um, by hanging them, he would steal women's underwear, as I mentioned before, and he said that he had this alter ego, um, he named it Factor X, which is very weird to name, like, your inner demon, but go ahead. And so he blamed it on that, which I think is just telling of who he is, because you can't fully own up to what you did. You have to blame it on something else. So that just seems right for the kind of person he is. I do also want to mention that he is still alive today. He is still in jail. Um, there was a TV show called Mindhunter who is... It's also postponed, just like this show is about to be postponed, so sorry guys. But <laughs> it's called Mindhunter. It's really good. There's only two seasons. He was in and out throughout this whole, I guess throughout both seasons. Um, so they kind of showed him a little bit, and it was super creepy. But if you ever want to go check out that show, I highly recommend it. It's about um, two FBI agents who are basically training police to look for and investigate serial killers. They have to go to different prisons and conduct interview with these serial killers, and it's just a really good show. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to mention. So I'm going to take a sip of my fruit punch before I start with this because it's really sad. So hold on to your butts. I'm going to take a sip of fruit punch. Um, if you guys have any alcohol, feel free to drink it. I am I'm not going to do that because it's going to make me cry, so sorry. We are going to start off with the most beautiful family I've ever seen, um, the Otero family. Uh, so this is a really heavy one. He, This is his first kill, and it is more than just one kill. It is four kills. So he kills an entire family. On January 15th, of 1974, Dennis Rader broke into the home of the Otero family um, early in the morning, around like 7 in the morning, um, right before everybody was kind of just getting up, getting ready to do their own thing. Um, he decided to cut the phone wires on the outside so nobody could call the police. Um, he broke into the house, said that he was, you know, he was wanted. He needed a car, he needed money, he needed food. He took a gun out on, um, so there was a mother named Julie Otero and a husband, Joseph Otero, he was also there, and the two kids, the most beautiful girl that I have ever seen, Josephine Otero and Joseph Otero is the little boy. And they were a beautiful family. Like, they did not deserve this a hundred percent. Um, 
Not to mention that they did have other kids, which I think hurt me more knowing that, that piece of evidence. Um, I call it evidence. It's not really that piece of the story. I'm sorry. But so he cut the phone lines. He said, oh, you know, I'm this wanted criminal and all this stuff. But then he forced the family into the bedroom. He tied their hands and their feet. Um, and I think he, he put them in different parts of the room. So first he strangled uh, Julie Otero, which was the mother, until she passed out. And then he moved on to Mr. Otero, Joseph. Um, and because he didn't really know, like, he was just trying to figure out how he could kill someone easily, I guess, and efficiently, he decided to do it with a plastic bag over their head, and he tied it with a cord. But he did that also for the little boy. Now, the thing was that I had heard for some reason, I don't know if this is true or not, I don't want to give you guys false information, but I had heard, so please feel free to reach out to me if I am wrong. I had heard that the little boy um, was able to breathe through the plastic bag so that um, Dennis Rader actually put a piece of t-shirt over the little boy and then strangled him that way so he couldn't breathe. Um, and... I that's it's heart-wrenching for me to tell the story because this is I think this is the all of these are bad but this one struck a chord with me because they were just an innocent family and he really didn't need to do this um and more importantly he's just a terrible awful garbage human being so I also want to mention that Dennis Rader did stalk his victims so he thought it was just going to be the wife and perhaps the kids. Um, but he didn't know the husband was going to be home. So he kind of freaked out on that one. So, yeah. It's a heavy one, guys. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a very heavy um, serial killer case. Like, this whole story is so bad. And I'm so sorry. But, I mean, we got to get through it. You guys wanted to hear it, so we're hearing it. This is dating the devil. Here we are, with the devil. Another thing I did want to mention with the little boy is that in the evidence that the police noticed, there was a small chair um, near the body of Joseph Jr. And it seemed to the police that uh, BTK, or Dennis Rader, had sat and watched as Joseph Jr. had suffocated and died. So, oh, yeah. It's not, it's not nice. It, he is not a nice man. And I, I don't wish him the best, quite frankly. I wish him the worst. The worst of the worst. If he could get that, maybe I'd be happy. But if he could get the worst of the worst of the worst, I'd be even happier. So, thanks. Now for the part I don't want to talk about, just because she is so cute, and um, this, ugh, I want to punch him in the face. Um, so Dennis, asshole Dennis, took the daughter, Josephine Otero, who was 11, by the way, um, to the basement, and he hung her by a pipe, 
And as he hung her, um, he, I guess he watched and he got off on it because there was semen, semen found by the crime scene. Um, and he took souvenirs like Mr. Otero's watch and he took the radio um, of the Oteros. Now, the thing that is weird with Dennis Rader is that he did not rape any of his victims at all. So that was a very weird thing. He more so got off on how they died. Um, so there was semen found um, by some victims, but they were never, he was never inside of them. He never did anything on them. Like, if anything, the semen was found by the crime scene or on their clothes. And that's what I think is so weird about this guy. One, he didn't kill nearly as many people as I thought he did. And two, he never raped anyone. Which, I don't know if that is better or worse. Because, like, they're killed in such a terrible, terrible way. And I, like, it doesn't help me to know, oh, at least they weren't raped. Like, come on. Like, it, that's just not beneficial. I would rather it be, ah, at least they're not dead. But here we are. Here we are. We're going through the whole freaking history. So. <sighs> I just feel like this whole thing could have been avoided. I don't know how. I wish somebody could have caught him early on. But. Life doesn't work out that way. And that's alright. At least now he has his karma. But fuck this guy, dude. Just, ugh. To make matters worse, uh, later during the day, Charlie Otero, who's 15 years old, um, came back from school. Um, and he heard his brother Danny Otero, who was 14, and his sister Carmen, who was 13, yelling for him to come to the bedroom. They thought their parents were playing a joke on them. They didn't realize that they were deceased. And they were forever scarred and are still scarred today from what that man did to their whole family. Um, later on, Raider had this, by Raider I mean Dennis. Uh, Dennis, BTK, Raider, trash ass Dennis, had this weird fascination with this news station called Cake TV. It's K-A-K-E, but everybody calls it Cake, so I'm going to call it Cake. Um, in the letter, he stated that he killed the Otero family. He was the one responsible. Um, and he wanted to be known. He wanted his name out there. So he was like, hey, I'm BTK. It stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. But... He said, if you don't like that one, I got a couple more, just in case you don't like that one. So here are all the names that he chose for himself because he is a crazy, insane asshole. <laughs> I'm just going to put it. This one, I'm going to curse freely. I don't care who's listening. Mom, I'm sorry, but here we go. I'm drinking fruit punch again. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> so in 
So here are the names that he named himself. BTK Strangler, Wichita Strangler, Poetic Strangler, The Asphyxiator, The Garot Phantom, The Wichita Executioner, The Wichita Hangman, Bondage Psycho, or Bondage Strangler. For me, I really like Bondage Psycho. It really packs a punch. So, the news station, we're like, you know what, fuck it. We'll give him what he wants, we'll just call him BTK, because he has the ego of a nine-year-old, and we're just gonna let him do whatever the fuck he wants, so. So, I do want to say some stuff about the Otero members, just because we're here, and I think it's better if I talk about the victims after we cover their cases. I'm just gonna start with the Otero family. Um, I'm going to start, I'm just going to read this off because I feel like it's better to read it off than just to paraphrase. I'm getting all my information for the victim's biographies from the Wichita Eagle. It's also on Kansas.com. I will post these, all these links, um, into my show notes. So, Joseph Otero, um, he was sometimes stern, but he had high expectations for his five children. Um, and he was also a man obsessed with aviation and cars. He was a talented bongo player, a flirt, and a cut-up. Um, he was the life of the party, his son Charlie said. He said if there were 20 guys in a room, he'd be in the middle making them all laugh, telling stories, joshing with people, flirting with girls. He was not a shy person. Um, he was born in Puerto Rico, and he immigrated to the United States as a boy. Julie Otero was a 34-year-old mother of five. She was petite. She only weighed about 100 pounds. And according to Charlie, uh, he said she was as sweet as an angel. But her angelic exterior hid an inner fighter, literally. A longtime Air Force wife, Julie Otero signed her entire family up for summer judo classes being offered on the base. She saw the classes as something she and her kids could do together. In no time, she was a brown belt, and her children were winning trophy after trophy, but she was a lady all the way. I love that. 11-year-old Josephine Otero was known as the new girl among her 6th grade peers at Adams Elementary School in the fall of 1973. She started school after the term had begun, something that tends to draw attention from a room full of 11- and 12-year-olds. They called her Josie. She was quiet and shy, but easygoing. She remembers classmate... Oh, remembers... <laughs> So, the classmate Bill Partridge had said she was quiet and shy, but she was easygoing. She would laugh when some of the other kids would sing her the theme song from the Josie and the Pussycats cartoon, which was popular at the time. Um, she was the best student in the family. Despite holding a yellow belt in judo, she was deeply entrenched in her girly life. She liked her Barbie dolls. She wrote poetry. She painted and she drew. She was inseparable from her older sister, Carmen. As for Joseph Otero II, he was the baby of the family, but he wasn't babied. He was known as Joey. He rarely left. He was rarely left alone by his four other, older siblings. Joey was the darling of the family. Everybody played with Joey, used him for judo practice. We'd make the dog drag him around the house, but it was all in love. At age nine, Joey quickly became one of the most popular boys in his fourth grade class at Adams Elementary. Um, his brother Charlie said he was good-looking, Hollywood good-looking. He had all kinds of girlfriends already. He had droves of them following him around. 
The family dog, Lucky, was a gift to Joey on his fifth birthday. Though the shepherd mix could be ferocious to strangers, Joey loved him. So I just wanted to make sure that you guys knew who they were because it is very easy to forget that all these victims are people. And I think it's really sweet that that entire family learned how to do judo. I'm going to teach my family how to do judo one day. We're going to kick everybody's asses, including Dennis Raiders. <laughs> so that kind of made me feel better. Um, so now we're going to talk about the, I can't say second, I guess the fifth victim, uh, Catherine Bright, and also her brother, Kevin. Um, so this is a few months after the Otero's murder, she was, Catherine Bright was murdered on April 4th of 1974. Uh, Dennis Rader had broke into her home and he hid in her bedroom. And at 2 p.m. she arrived home with her brother, Kevin, who was 19 at the time. And Dennis was not expecting her, which seems to be like the theme. Like he wasn't expecting the people to show up with other people. If that makes sense. Like, he was just expecting them, which really threw him off his game because he was somebody who he called it trolling. And then you got to the stalker. You had the trolling phase and then the stalking phase. And somehow those were different. The stalking phase was when he kind of acted on things. Um, which a lot of you guys are interested in true crime because you want to learn how to defend yourselves. You want to learn what not to do. And let me tell you what not to do is set a routine in your life. Break up your routine all the time. Switch it up because you never know who the next Dennis Raider is. So if that can save somebody's life, let it. Just switch up your, ro your routine. Carry a knife on you. Carry a uh, pepper spray on you. These things are so available and affordable and you guys have no idea how, how many lives... It could save just by getting self-defense tools. You have no clue. Um, I also recommend taking like Krav Maga classes, take judo, take, you know, con get a concealed carry class, get a gun if you feel safe with it. Um, I know my mentally ill people like me cannot, you know, dabble in guns. I can't own a gun because, you know, I'm on uh, depression medication, anxiety medication, all that stuff, all that fun stuff I've been on since I was a kid. Um, so in, in those cases, like, at least you can have a knife, at least you can, you know, defend yourself with your body, and, you know, for, lucky for me, Nate is covered. He, he's got them guns on him, so... I feel pretty secure in my home, but <laughs> if I, if I wasn't, if I was, you know, living by myself, I would make sure that, um, I could properly defend myself. I think it's important, and I think you guys definitely should learn, whether you're a man or a woman or non-binary, like, you just, I think it's important for everybody to know how to defend themselves, because you don't want to be that person who just doesn't get lucky one day. That's not, that's not how you want to end it. So, um, we had Catherine Bright and her brother Kevin. So, Raider came rushing out of the bedroom with a gun pointing at both of them. 
He told them the same thing, that he was a wanted criminal, he needed car, food, money, he was on his way to New York. Um, he forced them into the bedroom, and according to BTK, he doesn't remember um, who he tied up first. He said, oh, I either tied up Catherine first, or I tied up his brother first, but Kevin, who survived, um, was able to help tell the story. So he actually ordered Kevin to tie his sister's hands and feet. And then he took Kevin into the other room and tried to tie him up. But he wasn't, he wasn't as successful, uh, because Kevin got into a fight with Dennis Rader. Um, he got really close to taking the gun away from him, but then Dennis, um, got a good hold on the gun and shot Kevin in the head, not once, but two times. So, needless to say, Kevin was a little shocked. Um, and then he went to Catherine, uh, Catherine Bright. He went back in the other room. He was strangling her, um, and he was actually stabbing her in the abdomen multiple times because he realized that strangling um, didn't work. So I think he had, like, I, I don't know if he wasn't strong enough to strangle her or if the material he had wasn't strong enough. I, I'm not sure why that didn't work. Um, but it ended up getting more violent than it needed to be. Um, and luckily, Kevin somehow, by the grace of God, was able to escape. He ran a few blocks and he um, got multiple emergency surgeries um, blood transfusions, everything. Um, and he was actually able to survive. So he did survive, but unfortunately Catherine didn't make it. She died at the age of 21. So I will read some testimonials, some biographies about them. So Catherine Bright was a member of the Valley Center class of 1971, she went to the University of Kansas for a semester. University of Kansas. And then she returned to Wichita, where she got a job at Coleman. Um, and there were five kids in the Bright family and 18 cousins who would gather often. It was a close family, her cousin Marsha Brown said. She, Catherine was joyful, beautiful, memorable. She would have made a great mom. If she wasn't making me laugh, she was laughing herself. She was such a free spirit. That's what her cousin Marsha said. So she seemed like a very, very sweet um, girl. And, you know, makes me want to punch this guy even more. I don't, I don't know if I want to punch him or, you know, what? I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it in. I'm going to stuff it inside and just, I'm going to push it way down. And just not going to say anything because I'm angry. Nobody touch me. Now we're going to move on to Shirley Vian, who was a mother. Um, so the weird thing about Dennis Rader is that he took like cooling off periods, which is very unusual, but apparently it is very heard of as a serial killer. Now, we didn't really start seeing these cooling off periods until BTK because he had his, basically his 
his reign of terror was from 1974 to 1991. So um, he wasn't captured until like 2005, which blows my mind, but it took decades to catch him. So he did have these periods where he wouldn't kill anybody. But it wasn't till March 17th, 1977, um, when Shirley Vianne was murdered and she was 24. She left behind her three kids and her husband, Richard Vianne. So, um... Dennis Rader decided to go down the street, and he came in contact with a five-year-old boy named Steve Relford. He pulled out a picture of his own wife and son, and he asked the little boy if he knew who they were. The boy said no, and he went home. And later, um, Dennis Rader knocked on the little boy's door, and he posed as a detective, and um, basically commanded... Um, that the mom, who was Shirley Vian, get the kids into this bathroom and to lock them inside. And so I don't know why he had, like, not cared. Like, I don't know why he didn't kill those children. I'm surprised he didn't kill those children because it's not like he didn't kill kids before. Um, so there were three kids in the house, so Shirley's three kids, um, and he, she was held at gunpoint, and he, Dennis Rader, um, basically said, I'm not gonna rape you, um, I'm, he gave her a glass of water, he smoked a cigarette with her, he basically told her, hey, um, I'm a detective. I don't I don't know what bullshit story he tried to sell her on. But he was basically like, I'm not going to kill you. I just need you to do this for me. Um, you're going to be fine. That's what he made them believe, but that they were all going to be fine, even though he knew he was going to kill them. And if that's not fucked up, I don't know what it was. Um, so he eventually tied her up and he strangled her to death. Um, he left semen on her underwear that was found next to her body. Again, he didn't rape her. Um, and later, years and years and years, uh, when he decided to confess, he stated that the telephone rang in the house, which made him leave early. And the poor kids were screaming for their mom the whole time. Um, and if you ever watch... I. I don't, I think it's, it's called something BTK. It's a documentary. It is on Discovery Plus, I think. Um, basically, it's really nice because it has all of the family members. It even has BTK's daughter. Uh, most importantly, it has one of Shirley Vian's children who had said that he had pretty much seen the entire thing because he decided to peek through the door of the bathroom. And if that is not the most heartbreaking thing. And that poor kid, um, who was Steve Relford, the kid that, um, showed 
that BTK showed the pictures and said, um, do you know who this is? Um, so it was that kid. He said that he went through so many personalities. He had a huge personality disorder. Um, he was a huge drug addict. Um, went to mental hospitals. Like, And honestly, I don't blame him. I would have done the same thing. I would have had no choice but to um, have a personality disorder. That is the most traumatizing thing a child could probably see. So... Now I will say words about Shirley Vian. So Shirley had three children, Bud, Stephen, and Stephanie. And the son, Stephen, who was the one who was traumatized, um, remembers um, that his mother sang in a church choir, that she liked to sing. He said that she was a good mother. She always seemed happy. And that is all we got on her. And I just think it's really, really, really unfortunate that she had to die that way. And especially for those kids to go through that. And uh, in my personal opinion, I think Dennis Rader is a... What that little horn means is that he's a piece of shit and I hope he dies. Now we are moving on to Nancy Fox. So... By the December, by the December, by December of 1977, Dennis Rader became obsessed with 25-year-old Nancy Fox. So, this is his latest woman. On December 8th, he cut the phone line and broke into her, she had a duplex, but I guess you could call it, like, an apartment or townhouse. Oh. Um, he waited for her. Again, super, super creepy. And she lived alone. So he had no problems or, um, scaring the shit out of her. And he stood in the kitchen and held her at gunpoint. The weird thing is that he told her that he had a sexual issue. And that in order to get rid of that issue, he had to tie her up and rape her. But he never raped her. This is the thing that is so weird about this guy. He says, oh, I gotta rape you. But you never, like, it doesn't happen. So weird. But he tied her up. He undressed her. And then he started to strangle her. And then as he strangled her, he confessed um, who he was, what he did, and her body was found uh, with semen on the nightgown that was next to her. So that is Nancy Fox. That's really weird. Later on, um, he called the police department and he basically said, Oh, you will find a body and it is Nancy Fox. And the police tried and tried and tried to match his voice, but they just couldn't get anyone. Partly because... Um, Dennis had worked as an ADT uh, kind of security, not delivery, but like a, not, I guess like a, like a tech, like an installer for all the security systems. So he was very, it was radar under the radar. Like he was the picture perfect father who went to church and had a family and like 
led the Cub Scouts for his sons. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. This is how low-key this guy was. And yet, at the same time, he was an incredible monster. So, it's, I don't know, it's just shit. Um, and then he sent, he corresponded with the Wichita Eagle newspaper again to send a sarcastic poem called Shirley Locks. Um, and he basically wanted it known that he did all of these homicides. He, you know, he killed all these people. He wanted to go by BTK and he is just, he's a piece of shit again, as I say. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that, but I don't feel bad saying it. So I have no regrets in this last episode. I'm going to go out with a bang. So Nancy Fox was from South High School. Uh, people who knew her from high school recalled that she was smart and she liked to crack jokes. They said that she worked as a full-time secretary at the law company construction business. Um, and she worked two nights a week at a jeweler's. It was Hellsburg Jewelers in the Wichita Mall. Um, so she worked alongside Cindy Duckett filling out paperwork, resizing rings and watches, and Cindy said that she was professional. She wanted to work even more hours. She smiled a lot. She joked a lot. She worried about the bills she had to pay. She was responsible for herself, and she was more mature than the rest of the girls. So that's Nancy Fox, a badass bitch who was just trying her best. Honestly, she... She was living alone. She was trying to make a living for herself and trying to have a great life. And I honestly wish that she could have lived longer. I wish all these people could have lived longer. They, none of them deserve this at all. Like, 100%, 1,000%. I'm going to say it again. I know you're going to say it with me. One, two, three. He's a piece of shit. Okay, here we go. You guys made me finish my juice. So, um, I actually want to mention, because he did go cold after Nancy Fox, there's actually a missed victim on April 28th in 1979, um, Anna Williams. So, I'm also linking this into the show notes. Um, oh, I'm sorry. So, he broke in April 28th in 1978. Um, he broke into the home of Anna Williams, he cut her phone lines, and he spent hours waiting for her to come back. She was 63 years old, you guys, and luckily she stayed longer at her daughter's house. Um, so she, like, stopped by her daughter's house before going to her house, and Raider, Dennis Raider was basically like, ah, fuck this, and he left. Um, and so when Anna returned to her house, she found plastic wire from her basement in the bedroom her telephone wires were cut um there was like a weird they said in this article they said a bundle of bindings so I don't know what that means but they basically said there was rope wire underwear and belts jewelry coins and scarves that were missing basically Anna freaked out which I would too and she called the police immediately, and they were, I'm sure, just as baffled as she was. 
Um, and on June 15th of 1979, BTK sent two late, two laters, two letters <laughs> to Cake TV. Um, and one of them was a freaking poem. And it was called, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? But it's weird because the poem was titled, Oh, Louie, Oh, Louie, didn't you appear? Or is it Lewis? I don't know. L-O-U-I-S. Is it Louis or Lewis? We could go through this all day. I'm going to say it's Louis because Lewis is usually with a L-E-W. But I don't want to be wrong. But I know I can't be right. So I'm going to go with Louis. Anyway, BTK had crossed out the name Louis and printed Anna. So this was the weird poem. I'm going to read it to you. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Was perfect plan of deviant pleasure so bold on that spring night? My inner felling hot with propension of the new awakening season. Worn, wet with inner fear and rapture, my pleasure of entanglement like new vines at night. I think he listened to too much Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to scent to lofty fever that burns within, in that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation. The game we play fall on devil ears. Fantasy spring forth, mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at the end. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Alone, now in another time span I lay with sweet and rapture garments, Across most private thought, bed of spring, moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air, sunlight, sparkle tears, and eyes so deep and clear. Alone again, I trod in past memory of mirrors, and ponder why for number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? BTK, 1979. Oh. And a fun thing was that during his confession, Raider revealed that he became obsessed with Williams and was absolutely livid when, he, when she evaded him. I love that. I hate this guy so much. I'm so happy he got pissed off. That makes me happy. So, yeah, that was freaking his terrible, awful poem. God, he's such a mess. Like, I don't, I don't know where to, like, where to start. I've already started, but I mean, like, how do you dig in? Like, it's so much to unpack. This guy was a nightmare. And yet so stupid at the same time. So, at this point in time, we have two more cases. And then we're going to go into how... They got BTK, which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm not going to mention the entire thing, um, but we'll just go into it a little bit because there is so much like that's part of the case. And I don't like going too much into the, the court stuff because I want to focus on the victims. Just know that he got his justice. He's still in prison and he's rotting as we speak. Um... So now we're going to focus on, 
I'm sorry. We have three victims. Um, so Maureen Hedge, um, who was 53 years old, she was a widow, she was a kind and gentle woman, and he lived in the same block as her. Um, in the documentary that I watched, which I will link in the show notes, by the way, I'm not going to leave you guys hanging, his daughter mentioned that he, um, and his daughter was actually a key instrument in, um, recommending this case to the police because she was like, wait, this woman went missing. Um, that, so he, he lived next to, like, by, in the same block as this woman. They would go down the street, everything. Um, and he killed this woman. Her name was Maureen Hedge. Um, and on April 27th, Dennis was in the middle of a Boy Scout meeting and he stated that he had a headache and he needed to leave to get medicine. So he faked that he was getting medicine. So he left um, his car. He walked to his car that was near a bowling alley. He went inside. He got a beer. Um, it is so weird. He purposely spilled some beer on his clothing to give onlookers the illusion that he had been drinking. Then he called a cab pretending to be drunk and told the driver to take him to Park City. So I guess he didn't want to, I guess, be seen across the street, if that makes sense. Like, I guess if his wife saw the car, she'd know something was up. So that's why he had to take a cab. Whatever. Um, <clears throat> so he waited for Marine in her bedroom and Maureen and another man walked into the house but he stayed hiding until one in the morning so that the guy was gone and then he strangled Maureen by jumping on top of her in the middle of the night in her bed and choked her to death um and then he took her to um Oh my god. He dragged her body to the basement of the church where he was a trusted member. He photographed the body in multiple poses before putting her body back into his car and then dumping it along a dirt road that was not far from their house. And he put a weird creepy mask over her. The thing with the creepy mask that he had, which is even worse, and they mentioned this in the documentary, was that he went back to see her dead body because it got him off somehow. And she was far too decomposed. So in order to get off, he put that mask over her and then proceeded to, uh, yeah, to, to do that. To, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to say it. He's disgusting. Say it one more time, guys. Piece of shit. Now we're going to talk about Viggy, Viggy, Vicky Wegerly. Um, and I don't want to forget Maureen Hedge. So this is what they say about Maureen Hedge. Um, they said, in a sweet southern voice reminiscent of her Arkansas roots, Maureen Hedge always prefaced each sentence with, says well. And then she'd just start talking. Her daughter-in-law, Phyllis Hedge, said she talked like Dolly Parton. She was amazingly sweet. A petite woman. She loved shopping and jewelry. She was always meticulously dressed. Her shoes matched her clothes. She was very stylish. 
and she was just a perfect, meticulous little person. She was under five feet tall. She seems like a very sweet, sweet old lady. Um, so now we're going to talk about Vicki Weggerly. <sighs> so on September 16th of 1986, Dennis Rader dressed up as a telephone repairman and knocked on Vicky's door. She let him into his ha into her house, um, thinking that uh, he was going to fix the phone line, but he held her at gunpoint and told her that he was going to tie her up. Um, so as he tried to tie her up, she fought him really hard and put cuts and scratches all over him. Um, and then he got a rope and stopped her fighting by choking her to death. After that... Um, he posed her, he took pictures of her, and then he stole her car. Um, after that, her husband, Bill, so Bill Weggerly, came home, saw that his car was going in the opposite direction of his house, and he couldn't see the driver. Um, and when he came home, he saw his two-year-old son in the living room, just by himself. So he looked for his wife um, and found her dead. Now, the most messed up thing was that Bill was, like, suspected as, like, number one perpetrator to Vicky. So they were trying to charge Bill as um, the killer of Vicky, which he wasn't. And luckily for um, just justice sake they actually were able to charge Raider with this case and drop the charges on Bill so he was able to get custody of his boy again he was able to um you know just not have those charges anymore but I do think that probably messed up his life severely because even if you are a suspect in that case like they're gonna do everything to ruin your life just to nail you and it's just it sucks because he didn't do it. So he went through all that trouble for nothing. Um, so now we're going to read about Vicky. And where is it? Where, where, where? Guys, I ran out of juice. I don't, like, I want to get up and get more juice. But at the same time, like, I want to get Dennis over with because... He doesn't deserve to have me talk about him. But I want to, I want to, I don't know. I want to do more episodes, but at the same time, it's like, it puts such a toll on my mental health. And I think it's better that I don't. So while I do want to give you guys what you want, I also want to be mentally okay. So stories like this don't really help, but it's it's all good. Um, so Vicky loved children. Um, she loved her own children as well as other people's kids. Of course, I love other kids too. I love my little sister. I love little babies that I see across the street. They're so cute with their chubby little cheeks. So I get I get Vicky. I understand. Kids are cute. 
Um, oh, and she volunteered as a babysitter at St. Andrew's Lutheran Church, which she regularly attended, and at Asbury United Methodist Church, which was in her neighborhood. Um, and so the reverend, who was a pastor of St. Andrew's in 1986, said she was a wonderful woman. She was just a mild-mannered mother, quiet and loving. So I think she just really loved kids, and she probably loves kids like I love pets, which is fair. But she just seemed like a really good woman. So now we're going to um, talk about Dolores. So Dolores Davis, she is the final victim, um, which is good that she's the last victim, but not good that she was a victim, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so in 1991, this is kind of weird because this is when Dennis Rader started, you know, he had Maureen Hedge, um, he kind of went everywhere with the age groups. Like, there was not an age group that he didn't, like, dabble in. He went from really little kids to really older women. And I just think that's strange, but also shows you how fucked up he is. Like, there was not an untouchable person to him, which I don't like. Um, but he found a woman who was 62... Uh, named Dolores Davis. She lived a mile and a half away from Raider. <sighs> so this was his last victim. He was going on another camping trip with his Boy Scout, his Boy Scouts, with Boy Scouts. Um, his son was in Boy Scouts, but he was, you know, and Boy Scouts, I think it's similar to Girl Scouts. You take, like, uh, for my Girl Scouts, we had, like, two camp leaders which were basically like the adult chaperones so it would be Dennis Rader and another probably another either one or two dads and just a bunch of boys little boys and you basically teach them um how to tie knots how to go fishing how to you know do all these things and survival tips and I don't know it's about friendship and it's about nature and it's about Kind of just being prepared in life. Which is really great. But it wasn't great that Dennis Rader abused it to go out and kill people. And then make it an alibi. Um, so he did the same thing that he did with Marine Hedge. Which was um, he came up with an excuse again to slip away from one of the scout meetings. Um... He drove his car to his parents' house to change out of his scout uniform and into his hit clothes, which basically meant, like, his killing clothes. It's disgusting. And then he drove to the Baptist church in Park City to park his car and finish his plan out. And he got to the Dolores Davis's house. He waited outside until she was asleep, and then he broke the door at the back of her house with a block of cement that he found. I don't know how you find a block of cement, but okay. Um, to which Dolores came out of her bedroom and found him. He said the same thing. He needed money. He was a wanted man. He needed a car. He needed food. He was going to tie her up. 
Then he tied her up and strangled her to death. Then he took her body outside, put her in the trunk of his of her own car. Oh, switch it up. Then he drove to a lake near Park City and hid the body and evidence under some trees. Um, uh, what the heck? He drove the car back to the Davis's house, wiped it down for fingerprints, and then left to go back to the church. He went back to where he hid the body, put it in his trunk, and dumped the body under a bridge in Sedgwick County. And then, after that, he returned back to Boy Scouts in his Boy Scout uniform and acted like nothing ever happened. So, that, that is, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Like, how do you kill someone? Go back to Boy Scouts. This guy. Piece of shit. Okay, Dolores Davis. So Amy Davis remembers the nutty things Grandma did. So this was Dolor Dolores's granddaughter. She carried wet wipes everywhere to scrub any surface, faces included, that might possibly be germing. The way she hid matches on top of the fridge even after her children were grown. The way she rolled the car windows down just an inch or two for fear her grandkids might get sucked out by the vacuum. Roll it down, Grandma, the kids would yell from the back seat. Can you roll it down some more? No, that's enough, she'd say. Then she'd hum a tune and keep driving. She was funny that way, Amy said. Uh, Dolores Davis was born on June 6, 1928, in Stella, Nebraska, and grew up on a farm. She marched... <laughs> oh my gosh, it's 11.40 and I can't talk. Um... She worked for more than 25 years as a secretary for Lario Oil and Gas Company. She retired in 1990, just months before she died. She also sold Mary Kay Cosmetics. She liked that the company didn't test its products on animals. Oh, she was a good lady. That's terrible. I need more juice. If you guys want to know the juice that I drink, it's Minute Maid Fruit Punch. It is the best juice that I've possibly ever tasted. If you ever want a refreshing treat, put it, like, just pour some in, like, a little popsicle container, put that bad boy in the freezer for a couple hours, and you got one of those little, little treats. I'm gonna do that. I need a popsicle thingy. Okay, so this is the final part of the BTK, um, episode which I am just going to compile all this into one episode so it's going to be really long so you guys have so much to listen to so um there is this really awesome website who uh just compiled all of the stories and all of the facts and I just really liked it um but so we're going to start from when he stayed in hiding, and then we're going to go to how he was captured. So from 1991 to 2004, Dennis Ryder stayed in hiding. No one heard from him for over 10 years. But somehow, on the 30th anniversary of the Otero murder, he thought he was getting forgotten. Because all of the news outlets didn't really say anything. 
Um, but the Wichita Eagle newspaper actually ran an article about BTK. And a book came out about um, the nightmare that haunted Wichita, Kansas. Which they were talking about BTK too. But it made um, little old Dennis mad because they thought they were trying to tell his own story. And he didn't like that very much because he wanted to tell his story. So he mailed a letter to the Wichita Eagle in 2004 from the name Bill Thomas Kilman, which is BTK. Um, it had three photocopy pictures of uh, Vicki Weggerly, so the pictures of her that where she was posed, and then her driver's license. And that was like key evidence that it was from BTK because the cops did not have that evidence. Her driver's license had still been missing. And then he sent in, uh, remember Cake TV? He sent in another letter that had a puzzle on it, um, which had letters and numbers, and they tried to figure it out. Um, and then he left a package on June 9th of 2004, uh, taped to a sign in the middle of, I think... I think just Wichita. I don't know where. They just said in the middle of the city. Which, it had a gruesome depiction of the Otero murders and a sketch of a dead body hanging by a rope. rope. He titled the sketch, The Sexual Thrill is My Bill. And then they found another package labeled BTK that was found at the Wichita Public Library. And it, uh, Dennis Rader explained that time was running out for him. He wanted to wait for the right time for his next hit. And that's when cops were like, oh shit, because we're thinking he's going to come out of the woodwork again. He's going to kill again. So they were trying to work extra hard on this. Then the fifth item dropped by Dennis was found on October 22nd. It was a collage of children with bindings drawn across their bodies and faces inside of a manila envelope. It contained an autobiography that listed false details about BTK. Uh, just for example, the website lists the year he was born, the area he lived in. He was trying to mislead the police officers. And then in a... Um, I don't know what guy it was. It was some guys, like, they put it in the documentary as just this random guy. They put it in his pickup truck. It was a cereal box. And it just had markings BTK and bomb. And this guy, basically, <laughs> he didn't even know that, like, it was in the back of his truck. Until, I think, the news reporters or the police reached out to him. Um, because they had, like, a note from BTK saying, hope you found the cereal box, and everybody was freaking out. And luckily that guy never went to take out the trash, so he did end up recovering the cereal box. Um, but inside of the box had information on BTK's projects, um, people he stalked, and more misleading information. There was also a floppy disk, and <laughs> the best part, BTK asked, would it be able, would you guys be able to trace it back to the computer? Because uh, that would be a shame. And the police were like, no, man, we can't trace it. But of course they traced it. And they actually traced it um, 
to the church. And so they looked up who's like in the staff at the church that would have access to the com- one of the computers at church. Sure enough, they found Dennis Rader. Um, also, really creepily, they found a doll. Um, so it was in another cereal box and it was found January 25th. He sent directions to Cake TV on where to find the box. Inside the box was a doll with a rope around its neck and tied to a pipe simulating the murder of Josephine Otero. <sighs> yeah. And then the very 10th drop was a postcard that arrived in February of 2005 that was sent to Cake saying that he was going to send a floppy disk. So the police analyzed the floppy disk, which was drawn back to the Christ Lutheran Church under the name Dennis. And they looked up the church, found the name of the president. They drove past his home one day in an undercover vehicle and saw a familiar car from past security cameras. It was Dennis Rader's black Jeep Cherokee. The police had asked for his daughter, Carrie, for a DNA sample saying it was for a medical record. They basically took one of her old, um, which is really messed up. Um, but I guess they're able, I don't know how they were able to obtain this. Um, so from one of like her pap smears, they were able to get that DNA and match it to Dennis Rader. Um, so they matched the semen of Dennis Rader with his daughter Carrie's DNA, which is disgusting, by the way. And they found a match and they solved the case. So that was awesome. So on February 25th of 2005, the Wichita Police Department surrounded Raider's car after he ate lunch at work, led him to a waiting police car where he was handcuffed. Which is awesome. Um, I'm not going to go through that whole court case because it's a whole lot. But on August 18th of 2005, Judge Waller sentenced Dennis Rader to life in prison. He was not eligible for parole until 2180. He was also not allowed access to materials that would fulfill his fantasies. And then on August 19th, 2005, he was taken to his new home, the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas. So, he... And surprisingly, he confessed to a lot of these crimes in court. Like, I will, I will be posting all the links to all this information. And um, in that website that I had just read off of, they have, like, all of his confessions in, the, in court. And it's weird to, like, see him talk so casual about it. He was like, yeah, I guess I stalked her or whatever, but I don't really remember... It's just kind of like a thing I did, I guess, whatever. And it's so creepy to watch because you're like, this guy who's acting completely normal right now is talking about murdering this person and strangling to them to death. And I, it just makes you feel like I don't know how to feel. <laughs> so that was BTK, you guys. And I really hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed making it. So I will see you guys sometime in the future. This is not a forever goodbye, but it is a goodbye for now. Um, I wish you guys the best. 
Um, I hope you wish me the best because it's not the end. I will still be alive and well. I'm just off doing my my other stuff. Um, and yeah, I will see you guys next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode and yeah, don't date the devil guys. Just don't.